So we continue in our series, Cascading Faith Through Generations, and we've been studying the book of uh, 1 Samuel. And the series has been a bit like going on a hiking trail. Um, we followed little Samuel into the tabernacle at Shiloh. We met Hophni and Phinehas, the hard-hearted sons of Eli. And then from there, you know, and they didn't know the Lord. They were not in the least bit interested in what he had to say. In fact, they resisted it. For them, faith was something to exploit or mock. It was just such a stupid thing to believe. So why not take advantage of those who do? It's quite a brutal sort of like place to be. But imagine going in and these are your mentors. These are the people who are setting the pace for you. And this is what little Samuel goes into. But then we came to Eli. Unbelievably sad character because he's half-hearted. He wants God and. He believed in God. He wanted to hear his word. But he just had too much competition. Too many divided loyalties. And secondly... Eli was unusual in this, that he thought that God was so in control, so sovereign, that what he, Eli, did was actually unimportant. Remember, he said, well, he's God. Let him do what he wants to do. When God actually came to him and said, you need to do something. He's like, well, he's God. Of course, God is sovereign. But his sovereignty never gives us the right to sort of like just throw it back in his face. Sad, sad, sad. And then we had to leap, or we have to leapfrog the Philistines who also are on this hike, but to fit the Father's Day in, and I might go there next week. But it's really a great story about getting hemorrhoids and, you know, not being able to walk. <laughs> and a bunch of, it's like absolutely one of the most comedic sections in the whole of the Bible. And, you know, one, one town gets this uh, outbreak and hemorrhoids and everything, and they're like, send the ark off to the next town and they get the outbreak and then they're like, hey, this is too good to keep to us. So they send the ark to the next one. Like, no, thank you. No, thank you. And so they make a plan with the ark and, and what people thought, the God in the box last week, who is, you know, there to guarantee our success and our influence. It's the God we control. The Philistines soon discover this God is not tame. He does not accept the kennel at the back door and live off a few pellets. He literally is the God who is out of our control. Now that's a really important thing to remember today. God is asking us to open up our lives at the truest depths of who we are. And yet he refuses to be controlled. He refuses to be domesticated. He refuses to come and do, as it were, perform for us all the things that we expect a God should do. You see, when we create a God that does for us what we want it to do, we've made an idol. And so this has kind of been the journey. Um, and in some ways, it's been a really depressing hike. Um, <laughs> And uh, because it's just the sadness of hard hearts, half hearts, and sort of like this desire to control the gods. That's why I love Samuel. 
Now, Samuel. There's something in you just comes at me through the pages. I can't read him. You know, I, I read the story of Joseph and I see how the grace of God in Genesis actually gripped all of me. I could barely get through the pages of the last 10 chapters of Genesis without bawling my eyes out again and again because there's something of the mercy of God and the redemption of God in Joseph's story and how he reconciles with his brothers. And there's something in Samuel, you know, in chapter 16, verse 4, in a very different context, that simply says this, and Samuel did what the Lord said, in a life-threatening situation. So we come to uh, chapter 7. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord, and they brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to guard the ark of Yahweh. And the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim for a long time, 20 years in all. Then all the people turned back to the Lord. So, just like that. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, that's the name of the goddesses in the uh, Canaanite fertility cult. Rid yourselves and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve Him only, exclusively. And He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. And when they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water, poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was the leader. The Lord had established him as the judge, ruler, or leader of Israel at Mizpah. So during a 20-year period, Samuel had begun to attain like a national influence. So he was little. He's still a fairly young man at this point. Uh, Eli has died. We don't know how long he had under Eli, but he was possibly in his 30s, maybe still in his late 20s. But something has begun to happen during this 20 years in this time when, as it were, God was in exile. God wasn't because God was in Samuel. And Samuel's word starts coming. Now, it says, now all Israel turned to the Lord. And it makes it clear if you read in the original that that's actually like a heading in the text. It's actually, it's, it's not that it happened and then Samuel spoke to them. In fact, Samuel's words are like the life message that he poured out over Israel for his whole life, but especially during those 20 years. The context is very careful to show that he said this to all Israel, and it had happened before they gathered. In other words, he was traveling throughout all Israel, and he had this one message again and again. And if they needed to consult someone, if someone needed to fix a marriage, if someone needed to deal with a business that was failing... 
What was the one thing they knew they were going to hear from Samuel? His life message. They were going to hear this again and again. And if you want to sort your marriage out, you need to get your business in line. You've got, you've got relationships, you've got sorrow or pain or grief. Yeah, is the message. He must have repeated these words, explained these words, hammered these words home in a dozen different ways and contexts, year after year after year. Now, sometimes revivals break out in dramatic ways. Often an event, a key moment, a Pentecost-like thing. But it's very seldom that they've come out of the blue. But when you look, you can see that that was just a trigger event, the breaking through the surface of all that had been growing and going on in these times. And we read out of these 20 years, then all the people of Israel turned to the Lord. Question, how long will we hold to our life message and calling? How long will we be faithful in the message, in obedience, in prayer, in just putting the same message out there? I mean, it's, it's a message that's encapsulated in one verse. And he preached that for 20 years and more. 20 years of faithfulness. And then God brings a crisis. The Philistines invade again. Their nation is under threat. The enemies are attacking and God is setting them up for breakthrough. You see, this message, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves. See the middle voice. Active, rid something else. You know, passive, be gotten rid of, you get, you know, you're the one exiting. Middle voice, you do something to yourself. Rid yourselves of foreign gods, the asterisk, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. See why it's so important that you don't leave to God what God has given you to do. There's an action so I want to just pick this up. We've seen the hard-hearted, we've seen the half-hearted, and now we see the whole-hearted. Samuel resolves that the faith response and the environment must change, and he's seen the cruelty and the bitterness of the hard-hearted. He wants none of it. He's seen the apathy and the tragedy of the half-hearted. He wants none of it. He knows there's only one other option. It's the wholehearted, and he wants all of it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. This is the answer that he has found. Understand that when God says, love me with everything, he's not asking you to love you with compartments, <laughs> you know, that you somehow find your emotions in your mind. It's like just, they all come together. Yes, you can unpack them in different ways. But he's not causing, calling you to love him with the fragments of a confused and divided life. He's actually inviting you into the wholeness of loving him with all that you are. He's not compartmentalizing life when he says these things. He's actually integrating mind and emotion and body and everything. It becomes an extension of love. You see, God is calling us to filter all of our lives through a love for him. This is Samuel's message. 
Now, we must understand that when the Bible speaks of the heart, it's not talking about your blood pump, your cardio necessarily, or whatever. It's not even just talking about your emotions, especially in the Old Testament. The Bible's talking about your heart. It means your truest and most authentic self, which, of course, includes your emotions, includes your intellect and thoughts, impulses, intuition, imagination. It's all of you. But here's the thing, if I try to seek God but shield my emotions from Him, it's not going to work. If I try to seek God and have a few thoughts of, of, and paradigms and, and, and they're incompatible with Him, it's not going to work. I've got to literally let Him have a hold of everything. So if I'd been listening to Samuel, I'd have been having to listen and ask myself the question, what am I holding back? And why? You see, I jump to the New Testament. 1, 1 John four nineteen simply says this. We love because he first loved us. God only asks him to love you with everything you have. Open every sphere of who you are, your emotions, your intellect, your imagination, your context, conscience, your resources. Yes, even your physical body and the strength that you have. Give it in love to God. Why does he ask you to do that? Because that is how he loves you. God has withheld nothing. In fact, he even made a body for himself so that he could love you physically through his body on the cross. We're going to remember that later. There is an intensity to his stubborn, eternal, unbreakable love for you. And no matter what you faced, this is the God who's asking you to open up. And you know what? You could have been, or maybe even still in a place where you're tempted to be hard-hearted. There's been pain. There's been sorrow. There's been disappointment. There's been hypocrisy. And you're like, I don't want anything to do with this. Just shut up, God. Shut up. And he says, I still love you. And you may be torn and divided with a hundred things competing for your attention. He says, I still love you. Will you love me back? See, Samuel didn't need proof. There was so much seeming proof around him that God was a bit of a mess. Religion was a mess. But Samuel leant into the nature and person of God and not the stuff. And out of that place, he literally became a nation changer. Wholehearted. Samuel's message was the call to be absolutely wholehearted. Secondly, it was a call for ruthlessness. Get rid of the opposition that God faces in your life. In those days, the Baals and the Ashtoreths were part of a Canaanite fertility cult. And God says, just get rid of the competition. Get rid of the rubbish. Kick out the sin. Deal with the stuff. Rid yourselves. Okay? Problem with our idols and our sin is that we actually like them and we draw a lot of comfort from them. They've won our affection and they are there to please us. You see, the easy thing with an idol, as the Philistines knew, is that you could prop an idol up and keep it in its place. You have to go read that story. Sadly, Eli even made an idol of his own kids. We looked at this a few weeks ago. 
And, and we've been warned by educators, even secular educators, that we must not derive our identity from the performance of our children and their success. Got it? Our kids need to derive identity and faith from us and not the other way around. Eli had made a tragic mistake 3,000 years ago putting his kids ahead of the Lord. And like the Canaanites around him, he believed that it was his offspring that gave him meaning and success and identity instead of his God. And whatever you turn to for meaning, success, and identity, there you have found your God. Jesus warned us that money is a rival God. How many are looking to wealth for meaning and success and identity? But probably today our most obvious idols are the experiences of pleasure we believe that will make us happy. Look for those experiences of pleasure. That's, that's the existential philosophy around us. What are we trying to do? We're trying to make a meaningful middle out of what the world tells us is a meaningless beginning and a meaningless end. And so it's just the experiences that you have. And those experiences are meant to give you meaning and success, success and identity. And we are hoping, even in giving our kids these experiences, that we're going to pass something on to them. Samuel is ruthless. They've got to go. Rid yourselves of these foreign gods. We don't just live around them, we get rid of them. But his way of doing it is probably the main point of the message. And it's absolute genius. What brought about a national revival that lasts generations and ushers in Israel's golden age? It is the greatest manifestation. This, this verse right here, and all Israel turned to God, brings about the greatest manifestation of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament pre the day of Jesus. And you go into this era through Samuel, Saul's a little bit of a sort of like anomaly, but actually the nation demand, as it were, better leadership and bring out better leadership. And you hardly read through Saul and David and that kind of thing about idols and all the rest of it. They just are not fruitful. Something has shifted, clearing out the opposition, the rubbish and the sin. Though so here's the key learning. And quite frankly, this is why I've preached this whole series, this next point. So if I could have your attention. Ridding yourself is not an act of your willpower. It's receiving a better gift. Getting rid of the darkness is not about effort. It's receiving someone so much greater. Where is that in the text? In Samuel's words, it's a little bit obscured in our translation. But if the first call of his message, his life message, is wholehearted love, the second thing is 
get rid of the rubbish. His third thing is be ready to receive. You see, it's not just about getting rid of stuff. It's about replacing with someone so much better. Now, the middle part of Samuel's message hinges on a phrase that is used probably only twice in the Old Testament. I'm not a Hebrew guru, but uh, the NIV translates it, commit rid, and then commit yourselves to the Lord. The New American Standard Bible, which is, it tries to be a little bit more literal, says, and it brings in this word, an important word, direct your hearts to the Lord. And it's actually the word heart is in the text. But they're still missing it. You see, commit suggests more commitment. <laughs> commit is about your willpower. Like it's, I got to just, you know, when a rugby player commits, when a soldier commits, what do they got to do? They've got to like just, Give it horns, you know. This is not a command to try harder. Better would be send or give your heart to the Lord. I've heard preachers scorn the idea of giving your hearts to the Lord because it's not in the Bible. Well, in the original language, it probably is. <laughs> Literally just giving your heart to Jesus. It includes the will, but it's a much more intimate idea. It's like a wife longing that her husband would give her the gift of his heart. Intimacy, devotion. In fact, some translations use this word devote. But the most literal translation is actually found in the New King James Version. You never thought you'd hear me quote the King James. <laughs> it says this. And it's in a long tradition in the Bible. It's in the life of Elijah. It's in the prophecies of the Old Testament. It, it bursts in and introduces the great ministry of Jesus in the New Testament. Prepare the way or prepare your paths, literally. Prepare your heart. What's the difference? Anyone? Commit your heart to the or commit yourself to the Lord. Prepare your heart for the Lord. What's the difference? I'm I'm asking you to talk to me. I want you to think about it and try and map how different these two things are because they, it, the insight is critical. Okay, so the commit is like you going into and after something. You're giving it horns. And I, mean, I, I think Samuel would happily say, good. But there's something so much more. When you prepare your heart, you're actually waiting to receive something. You see, the main direction in Samuel's theology is from God to us and not the other way around. The main direction of the New Testament is from God to us and not the other way around. Samuel is this most amazing anticipation that God so loved the world that he gave his son to come into the world that whoever believes in him. The main direction, when you understand the language he's used, is from God to us and not the other way around. You see, God is more like a wife who's longing for her husband 
to literally love into his heart. There's a little difference. The one is a wife longing to be loved. The other is a wife longing for her love to find a home in her husband. God wants his love to land in you. That's what Samuel was teaching his people. Every day of your life, explore. God is moving towards you, taking you the initiative, sending his promises, extending his generosity, pouring out his mercy and love and grace. Stop trying so hard. Let him come. You can't earn it. Prepare your heart for God. Just prepare your heart for God. Get rid of the competition. Open wide. (laughs) Prepare your heart for God. Stop making commitments you never keep. Like your relationship does not depend on how good you are. Like if it's if this is going to depend on how strongly I can commit myself to God, then it's it's still Old Testament. Samuel's genius is he's anticipating the new. You see, the old is full of the new. Prepare your heart for God. Revelation three verse twenty. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door. I will come in and eat him. I mean, eat with him. (laughs) But he will consume you. He will take over. Notice this, though, that you still have to act. The command is that you prepare your heart. You get yourself ready. There's still an action. We prepare our hearts for his invasion. In World War II, D-Day invasion required all kinds of allied agencies stationed inside mainland Europe to prepare for the main force to come. Remember D-Day, World War II, you were all there. Okay. Without their lesser action and preparation, the main force could not have successfully landed But without the main force, the war would be lost. You've got to prepare something so that the real winners can break in and arrive and win the day. If you don't prepare, they can't land. God is invading our lives. And we can prepare ye the way. Make the rough places smooth. Knock down the mountains. Fill up the valleys. God is coming. Give your heart unconditionally to God is what Samuel is saying. And let him invade. Let him occupy. Let him sow. Let him harvest. Let him have his way. Let him govern as he pleases. And we're going to go to Romans 5 in a minute at communion. But if you'll do that, you'll find a love that brings rest and peace. You will find a glory and a joy you can't express. You'll find a patience and an endurance, a gentleness and a kindness, a generosity and a faithfulness, and a love that is being poured into your hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom God gives freely, freely.
see the genius that Samuel had come to understand in the nature of God? That if I prepare my heart, and yes, I deal with these foreign things as best I can. When he occupies, he literally loves the rubbish out of us. It's like there just isn't room for two of us. But sadly for many of us, like the Philistines, we want a God we can control. So we're afraid to open the door. In fact, the Philistines sent him away. But you can open and let him in. Prepare your hearts for the Lord. Of course, God wants you to love him. But he knows that the best way that that love will happen is if you let him love you. As I was preparing this sermon, Revelation 3 was almost there, this prepare your hearts, open your hearts. And it was as if I could see a key in every heart. Can you imagine that? Like a heart having a key to open up and get ready and be prepared. And as that picture was with me, suddenly I felt the Lord say this. And at first it, it was so intensely personal, I was literally on the floor. But I realized, of course, the promise is for me, but it's for us. This word I'm preparing, it wasn't Craig's message, it's us. I sensed this from the Lord. I will give you the keys to the hearts of men, women, and children if you will give me the keys to yours. Explore, do we want to reach people? Do we want to see the people at Conradi Park or the people in the athletics club or the people that we cycle with or the people we parent with or the people uh, who we do 101 different things? Do we want to see them? God says, I, will, I've got, I know where the keys to their hearts are. But will you give me the keys to yours? See, when people see that our hearts are safe in God, when people see that our hearts are satisfied in God, it would be the most natural thing for them to trust him too. Can we pray together? Can I have the worship team up? God has been showing us in his word how to cascade faith through generations. In one sense, God is saying, don't obsess about the next one. Just make sure I've got this one. If I've got you, the rest is detail. If I've got you, you've got everything you need. we say come Holy Spirit
you know, one of the signs that you know God loves you is that His Word has spoken to you. That's what Paul told the Thessalonian church. Brothers, sisters, we know God loves you because our Word came to you and it wasn't just words. The words came to you and you knew the Holy Spirit was there. It came with the Holy Spirit. It came with power. And it came with deep conviction. We know God loves you because God's word came like that. Literally, God speaking to the depths of your being is one of the ways that his love comes. So this morning, you can open yourself in the depths of your being by saying, God, count me into an awakening. A golden age, an expression of the kingdom that lasts generation upon generation. I want this, Jesus. Let him have your yes. Will you give him the keys to your heart? Will you drive out the idols? Israel came, they confessed their sin, they got rid of the rubbish, they tore down those high places and let Yahweh, fill them fully by His Spirit. And so in this moment, I believe there's a grace in our room right now for breakthrough into an inhabitation from God. And He's saying, I'll give you the keys. I'll give you keys. But will you give me the keys to your heart first? That's true. You, you never go from a hard heart or a half heart straight to a whole heart. David knew, who was mentored by Samuel, that the only way you go from those conditions is through a broken heart. It's like God breaks the things that have controlled you, breaks the things that have won your affection and your loyalty, and it feels as though your repentance is literally killing you. But your repentance is actually saving making you whole. So Father, we pray for the grace that David knew. That a broken and contrite heart, a broken and contrite spirit, you will not despise. So we're going to prepare for communion. And I want to remind you of Romans chapter 5. Just going to read three verses. You see, just at the right time, verse 6. When we were still powerless, God took the initiative. God came. Christ, Messiah, King. Meant the same to the original listeners. The King the Christ, the Messiah, died for the ungodly. The King died for us. The King died for us.
how much more must he do? You know, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love, his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, the king died for us. Christ died for us. And so, Father, we thank you for these symbols of bread and the cup. Thank you that your body was broken, your blood was poured out, that we who were lost can find our way home, that we who were guilty can be justified, that we who were defiled can be made clean, and that we who had scorned our birthright can once again be celebrated as the sons and daughters of the King. Amen. Thank you, Lord.